all of the women who are very pregnant or the ones who have kids there are all at Bedford and they're um, on lockdown. Uh, officials told me they were not on lockdown, but they are, in point of fact, all actually confined to their housing units, which by any conventional metric would be called a lockdown. And, and this is one of the prisons that has had a number of cases. You know, there is a prison with it's been a hotspot for coronavirus that has multiple you know, pregnant women and women with children. And obviously that's not a great combination. I think there's a long way to go on all of this. You're listening to Works of Justice, a podcast by PEN America. Over 230,000 women are incarcerated in prisons and jails across the U.S. and the number is rising. To offer a snapshot of the landscape, the Prison Policy Institute, a nonpartisan nonprofit focusing on mass incarceration, issued reports that over 100,000 women in the U.S. are incarcerated in local jails. 60% of them haven't been charged with a crime. As COVID-19 continues to sweep through the criminal justice system, this pandemic is exacerbating the difficulty of these women's daily lives. To understand the particular challenges faced by incarcerated women, of whom 80% are mothers, to name one glaring example. And to learn about how COVID-19 is amplifying them, I called Carrie Blakinger. Carrie is the first formerly incarcerated writer at the Marshall Project, an award-winning nonprofit news organization reporting on criminal justice issues. She also reports for the Houston Chronicle and co-hosts their podcast, Behind the Walls, about criminal justice in Texas. Carrie's thorough and thoughtful reporting has led to prison reforms, including a state-level effort to get 3D-printed dentures to incarcerated communities. I'm Kate Campbell, PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program intern, and you're listening to our new Rapid Response series, Temperature Check, COVID-19 Behind Bars. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. You're um, a reporter at the Marshall Project. So I'm curious about what your path into journalism looked like. Well, for me, I I think I first started writing um, for the local newspaper when I was in high school. Um, There was a section of the paper that was mostly written by teenagers. Um, It was, you know, a lot of movie reviews and book reviews and some featurey things. Um, And I started doing that and I liked it, even though it certainly wasn't hard news. Um, and, uh, and then from there, I guess in, I didn't really do anything with journalism when I was in college initially, um, because there wasn't a strong student newspaper at Rutgers, but then I transferred to Cornell and, um, they had a strong student newspaper there. So I got involved, uh, even though I was also addicted to drugs at that point. So I was doing heroin and also working at the student newspaper and, marginally attending classes, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I, uh, after college, I, uh, I got arrested and ended up doing, you know, a little under two years in prison. But then when I got out, um, there was a, an editor from the local newspaper in Ithaca who was trying to write a story about women in jail. And she asked if she could come out and interview me. And so I talked to her and afterwards she was like, Hey, I Googled you. You seem, you know, I I read some of your previous stuff from the student newspaper. You seem pretty good. Do you want to try writing for us? So, um, I was about a year out of prison, I think at that point. And, um, 
I said, sure, and started covering these small town board meetings in upstate New York in towns with like one stoplight and like 5,000 people. And the biggest issue was sort of backyard chickens and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really liked it anyway. And, um, you know, from there, I just, I stuck with it. Um, I went to the New York Daily News and then to the Houston Chronicle. And I'm currently still in Houston, but working for the Marshall Project. Very cool. And so through all these different newspapers that you've worked at, have you covered the same thing or did it kind of change over time? And I guess I'm wondering what stories you're focusing on now within criminal justice. Um, I mean, it's evolved over time. I started with doing general assignment at a small paper, like I said, so I was doing a lot of government, um, you know, municipal government type stuff. And then um, when I went to the New York Daily News, I was doing national breaking news. So it was, you know, basically just sort of the six or seven worst things that happened in the country on any given day. It was, you know, a lot of aggregation, but uh, actually very depressing aggregation. (laughs) Um, And um, I also did some coverage of the New York prison system and Rikers Island a little bit when I was there. Um, I sort of jumped in to help the existing Rikers Island reporter, um, Ruben Blau, who's amazing and is now at um, the city. Mm -hmm. Um, So I... I was mo- I was still very much a generalist though when I came to the Houston Chronicle and I started here at in Houston as um, a general assignment reporter and then after a year when I got hired permanently because I'd started on a fellowship when I got hired permanently they were like hey why don't you take like a mini beat or something you know our death penalty reporter just retired do you want to take over for that and I was like sure sounds perfect um, and um, you know because it, it seems like a very sort of defined beat that wouldn't be a whole job and it was an area that interested me and was you know it's still technical and complicated to cover but there's very human stories involved right Mm -hmm. um so I was sort of excited and it was overlapping into prisons a little bit which was at least somewhat interesting to me um but I didn't really have the intent to be a prisons reporter and then it just sort of expanded like, it was like, can you stop writing so many death penalty stories? So then it was like, okay, I'll do prisons. And I sort of expanded into prisons. And then it was like, well, okay, can you do jails or mental health? And, and they kept being like, stop writing so many prison stories. So I kept expanding to sort of more criminal justice. Um, and, you know, by the time I left and came to the Marshall Project, I'd, you know, become very much a sort of criminal justice generalist, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um And now at the Marshall Project, um, you know, I'm doing a lot of prisons. Uh, I think it's changed. I think the coronavirus has changed our job descriptions a little bit. I probably would be doing a little more sort of generalist criminal justice anywhere. But um, since this happened, we've all had to sort of take specific beats within criminal justice. And um, so I'm sort of responsible for the prisons and um, BOP part of it. Okay. And covering the criminal justice system, I don't know if you feel this way too, but sometimes I feel like the coverage or like conversation about criminal justice focuses a lot on um, men who are incarcerated or just like the criminal justice system as a whole. So I want to ask you specifically about issues that are particular to women's prison and um, just issues that you've experienced personally too. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think that part of the reason, I think there's a few reasons that men get more coverage. First of all, I mean, men obviously make up a bigger part of the system, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But I also think that, um, you know, 
women women's prisons in and I don't have like data on this and there's a few reasons the data would probably be difficult to to parse but you know women's prisons sort of in my experience and the experience of my friends that I've talked to tend to have like less con less cell phones and less drug contraband than men's prisons just because women tend to not have the sort of means to, to get it in um and that means that they're harder to reach through like illicit means. Like you're less likely to get um, a contraband cell phone call from a women's prison. So all of these, and if you think about it, all these Facebook live videos you see popping up during coronavirus, like you've seen a lot of them out of prisons, they've all been men's prisons, you know? Um, And I mean, I think there's a number of reasons for that, but I mean, that, that does seem to be a trend that, you know, that I've observed, but also, women seem often less likely to reach out to the media. Um, not that it doesn't happen, but, uh, uh, you know, this, this is something that I noticed when I was on the inside. Um, this is, you know, something that I see in just the proportions of my mail because I get a ton of jail mail and it is overwhelmingly male as you would expect but even more than can be explained by the existing proportions. so i think there's a few factors as to why we don't see as much coverage of women um you know they're an invisible part of a system in which most people are invisible to begin with in a lot of ways right no that's really interesting do you know you were saying that you know you think women are more hesitant to reach out why would that be in, I guess, your opinion? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, we always, when I was inside, we always used to sort of say, oh, you know, something bad would happen and we wouldn't organize to like do something about it. And we'd always be like, oh, if this was the men's prison, they'd all organize and you know, women just can't, you know, band together. And I don't think that's really quite true, but I do think it sort of gets at something that about the differences between men's and women's prisons. And I I actually think we always sort of blamed ourselves and we were like, well, you know, we're the ones that won't band together or won't reach out to the media or whatever. But I I, I wonder if it's also about risk and, you know, women being less willing to take certain risks because they have kids at home. Like they are you know, there's certain crimes and certain behaviors that are, are less, the women are less likely to engage in regardless. I mean, they commit fewer violent crimes, you know. I think there's certain ways in which women are probably more risk averse about certain things than men. And when they're incarcerated and they're trying to get home to their kids, I think it also creates like a different set of pressures. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I think it'd be really interesting to see some data on this. And I don't know if this has ever been looked at, but, um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. So that's just me sort of spitballing. I don't really have a clear answer on that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And something I also want to ask you about was like speaking about, you know, women who are pregnant or are mothers um, having to like navigate the healthcare system in prison. Um, are there any particular challenges that women face trying to receive healthcare in prison or some that you experienced? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that, women and men face a lot of the same challenges in terms of healthcare, obviously, mm-hmm. like there's that, but, um, typically prisons and, you know, correctional systems general are in a lot of ways tailored towards 
men because they're the majority you know they're usually the people that run the place they're you know often the majority the people that are in charge of funding the place like and most of the people that are incarcerated there are men so sort of by default it's a system created for men and that can also have effects in terms of what women's health care needs are available um when i was um in jail um you couldn't get prescribed birth control which i mean sure you're in jail that sounds why would you need it but you know at the same time if you're only in for like two months it's not great for your body to like be going on and off of that and um you know in my case like i uh you know well whatever this is this is i don't know maybe grossly weirdly personal but i ended (laughs) up like i ended up having my period for like nine straight months okay and that is terrible you do not want to bleed every day for nine months obviously that's terrible right but the jail wouldn't give me birth control the one thing that like could have regulated it and i think this was just sort of my body adjusting to coming off all these drugs and um you know i mean i i don't know what happened maybe just living around all these women it's not a problem i'd had before it's not a problem i've had since it was a problem i had in jail and i couldn't get prescribed birth control because they don't prescribe it in jail because they were like but you don't you're not having sex in jail and i was like yeah but i don't think this is healthy either right right um And so, you know, I think that's just an example of, like, men would not view that as necessary. I think most women would agree that's necessary at that point, right? Totally, Um, yeah. You know, so, I mean, I think that that's a, 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 you know, sort of, sorry if I've grossed any listeners out, but (laughs) it's a very, very clear example of ways in which, you know, prisons and jails can fail women in terms of health care. And, you know, I think that for women who are pregnant, that can obviously be similarly and, you know, similarly challenging in in more problematic ways. Um, So, you know, like I've been in, when I was in small county jail, like they would occasionally have women who were pregnant, but there's no maternal healthcare there obviously you know they have to shackle you in belly chain and you know take you to an outside provider for any sort of gynecological care um some prison systems have nurseries um some some even have places where you can keep your kid for 18 months or something or one has a two-year max after you give birth but those programs are usually really hard to get into um you know so it's just, it's such a random whim of the system, whether you are able to, you know, keep your baby for a few months after giving birth, um, you know, and, and I, I understand, obviously, that there's, that that's an expensive undertaking, you know, dealing with incarcerated women, keeping their children behind bars, um, but, you know, I feel like this is, this sort of speaks to the extent to which the system is geared towards men and i and i'm not saying this in some way to disparage men or say like they're at fault for creating a system that doesn't account for women i mean that's a separate conversation as to why this system exists the way it does and who's at fault but the reality of it is that you know it doesn't account for women in many basic and important ways simply down to you know healthcare. right and thinking about to trying to receive health care during the pandemic have you done any reporting or any of your colleagues about like 
any additional challenges that are being presented during the pandemic regarding healthcare? Um, you know, I think that we're going to see those things play out over time. Um, I am hearing terrible reports from women's prisons and from men's prisons. I haven't so far heard anything um, that was particularly gender specific. Um, there have been some reports of, um, I know, I know I remember reading that one of the prisons in Fort Worth, one of the federal prisons, there was a woman there who had to have an emergency C-section because she had COVID. You know, I don't, she wasn't identified in that report. I haven't tracked her down. Like, I, I don't know any details about that. Um, I haven't heard any sort of, you know, I, ha I haven't heard of like an outbreak in a nursery or something. But frankly, it's a matter of time. I know that the in New York, Bedford Hills, the prison where they have the nursery and all the pregnant women who are, you know, past a certain, I think it's after five months in, you would go to Bedford Hills, um, maybe it's six months, I don't know. Um, you know, all the women who are very pregnant or the ones who have kids there are all at Bedford and they're um, on lockdown. Uh, officials told me they were not on lockdown, but they are, in point of fact, all actually confined to their housing units, which by any conventional metric would be called a lockdown. Right. Um, so clearly, and, and this is one of the prisons that has had a number of cases. I don't remember how many off the top of my head, but New York has been fortunately posting that data online. Um, so, you know, there is a prison with, it's been a hotspot for coronavirus that has multiple, you know, pregnant women and women with children. And obviously that's not a great combination, but I haven't heard those specific horror stories out of there yet. Yeah. Um, I think there's a long way to go on all of this. Totally. And I wanted to pivot a little bit too and ask you about, um, this really beautiful personal essay that you just wrote for the Marshall Project. And it's about how um, the fear of sheltering in place, like after having been incarcerated, in many ways, it's like bringing you back um, to kind of the lack of control that you felt when you were formerly incarcerated. And I'm wondering if you could just share with listeners what sheltering in place has been like for you and just how it shifted or changed at all since you wrote the essay, if it has. Yeah, so um, that was actually a very cathartic essay to write. Um, my first few weeks of sheltering in place were, you know, were terrible. And I mean, obviously it's not fun for anyone, but this was sort of more than just like not fun or like I'm worried and sad. Like I just completely panicked and it wasn't because of the pandemic per se. It, you know, wasn't because of the economic uncertainty that goes with all this, which are also legitimate reasons to panic, obviously. Um, but it was just because the idea of being, in like a forced lockdown situation just freaked me out so much it sort of brought back all these issues um you know all this like trauma basically that comes up in the course of incarceration um i'd done some time in solitary confinement not a long time at any point but a few days here and there and i did not handle it well i basically just panicked when i first walked into a cell in solitary, which would have been in like 2011. Like I remember going in and like, just, I was just blown away by how neon white the walls were and the window, there's a horizontal window slit above your bunk. 
but you can't actually see out of it if you're standing on the floor. And if you stand up on your bunk to look out, you get yelled at because you're not allowed to stand on your bunk. And there's no clock and there's nothing. Like I didn't have any books. I had a Bible and I'm not religious, but that's the only book I was allowed to have. You don't have like crosswords. You have like three sheets of paper um, and a cup and a toothbrush. Um, You know, there's no radio, there's no TV. You can hear the muffled screams from the people next to you, but like you can't really hear what they're saying. And I was on the second floor, so I couldn't really see or summon the, you know, any, anyone outside. Like I couldn't, you know, wave to the guards or anything like that. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people say to me that solitary, you know, they like being alone. They're sure they would like, they wouldn't mind solitary confinement. But solitary confinement is not being alone. It's more like being buried alive. You just, you lose sense of time you sometimes question if you still exist and you don't know when you're getting out or when this ends. And it's, it's really just sort of, for me, it was like extremely disorienting and I felt like I very much dissociated when I was in it. And I didn't think anything else would ever sort of bring me back to that place mentally. But the first few weeks of this, like I felt like I was going crazy. Like I was losing track of time. You know, I would wake up in the morning, not sure if I was alive. It was really, I was really sort of embarrassed by the way in which I felt like I was losing a grip on reality. And it's gotten a little better since then. You know, I've spent a lot of time talking to people that I did time with, you know, sort of talking through that some of them feel the same way. And that at least made me feel like it was, uh, you know, like my reaction was not, I don't know outside the norm for someone who's been through the set of experiences that some of us have been through. Um, you know, but it's still hard. I mean, I have, I have, you know, a few days where I can function somewhat normally. And then, you know, a few days where, um, just everything seems confusing and disorienting. And, you know, I just try to, in those days, talk to people who've been where I've been and, and also to sort of focus only on the story I'm writing and not think of anything outside of it and, you know, have a very narrow focus on, you know, just what's on my screen, which I mean, is admittedly all depressing these days, but, um, you know, but it's also like, there's a very clear beginning and ending and a very clear path in front of me to what I need to do. And I can, you know, try to block out the things around me, which I mean, I'm sure these tactics and techniques are things that, you know, other people might do who are, struggling with this and have never had these experiences but um you know that's that's how I've been coping that and running a lot I am running so much I'm gonna end up with knee injuries as a result of this (laughs) (laughs) like my knees and my liver both hate me right now (laughs) I feel you there (laughs) well yeah that was such a beautiful essay and I'm really glad you shared it because I think for people even you know without experience of being incarcerated like you're saying I mean it's so traumatic and especially what you were describing from solitary just like the white walls and like no clock and just this feeling that you are not in any way connected to normalcy at all I think is so jarring and so yeah you can even imagine yeah and I think what you're mentioning too about like ways that you're kind of coping like staying connected to people and you know focusing on work and stuff like that it's yeah so relatable And I guess, do you have any advice for other people who are feeling re-traumatized after having had a similar experience incarceration and then are like coming out and 
yeah, trying to cope with this as well. Um, I mean, I, I feel like the ways that we deal with like the sort of different traumas of this are just so different. You know, it's, it's hard for me to, to have any advice. You know, I think that to some extent though, it's, it's like for incarcerated people, I think we are our own best allies on this. You know, these are the people who who sort of know how to say the things to get you out of that headspace because you've all tried to live through those same experiences. You know, these are the people who know how to, you know, talk to someone who's in the next cell and sort of losing it in isolation. Um, And I think that in some, to some degree, we're sort of uniquely well-equipped to help each other. Um, Obviously I have a limited number of, you know, formerly incarcerated people in my life. So I'm also fortunate to have some other, you know, really good friends who haven't had those experiences and have, have, you know, no understanding of it, but have been just amazingly supportive. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think I don't have, I don't have concrete advice, but I mean, I will say that it's, it's really helpful to have a network of positive people, including those who've been formerly incarcerated. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I really appreciate it, especially because it's already such a chaotic moment. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. All right. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. To read Carrie's personal essay and reporting, visit themarshallproject.com. This podcast is part of our weekly temperature check series, which also includes original reportage by currently incarcerated writers and links to other journalism and advocacy efforts. Temperature Check can be found through our Works of Justice portal at pen.org slash works of justice. This episode was mixed by Robert Pollock with support from Elizabeth Fiore, researched and hosted by myself, Kate Camel, and produced by Kate Meissner for PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program. Thanks for listening.